Welcome to the Business Trendsetter Podcast, where we talk about trends and how to use them to grow your business. My name is Manny Turan. And I'm Adam Hartung. We're Spark Partners. We're here every week to, sh- to give you some insights on how to use trends, how to think differently, how to really get outside that box, then think. And uh, I have a couple questions for you, Adam. Uh, first of all, were you a Boy Scout? I was. Do you remember the Scout motto? See, uh, off the top of my head, the Scout motto. Is it be prepared? Indeed, be prepared. So I was a, a Boy Scout. I was actually an Eagle Scout. And so uh, I really uh, took that to heart. And, and even now what I do is I, I'm, I'm looking at how can I be prepared? And of course, on today's podcast, we want to sort of reflect on uh, what's happening in the world with trends. And, you know, we thought about this idea of discussing the, the fire in Hawaii, the Maui fire, fires, that would cause so much devastation in light of two things. I think the first of which is the, to be prepared. And the second of which is, uh, this whole, uh, umbrella of trends and, and really, uh, what we're fighting against when we fight against, uh, things like these fires and, and where they were and the things that had occurred previous. Uh, and so let's talk, uh, first of all, what happened in the fire that could have been prevented? How could they have been more prepared? Well, thanks for asking, Manny. And it, it was interesting to me that um, I'm kind of a, a weather junkie a little bit. I, and I think it's because I grew up in Oklahoma where um, in, in the 1960s, you didn't have the technology we did today. So you're, you're, you were there. It was smart to be able to learn how to recognize the patterns in the sky that would lead to tornadoes and hailstorms and all kinds of bad things. And, and, and then I lived most of my life you know, in Oklahoma and then in Illinois. And so um, I, I just always been fascinated by weather. Anyway, I real I observed um, a week ago this hurricane that was developing in the Pacific Ocean. We never really think that much about hurricanes in the Pacific. We always think about the Atlantic ones coming into Florida. But uh, I noticed there was this very very large Category Four hurricane that was going to go south of Hawaii, and it was actually reported on in some of the local press talking about it. And they said they called it a fish hurricane because they said nobody would care except the fish. Well, what happened then was that the Hurricane, which is a giant low pressure center, went south and it has counterclockwise winds. And then it was south of Hawaii. And then there was this giant high pressure cell that was north of Hawaii. And that caused there's and there they have a clockwise winds. So you had the winds from two cells, a very big low and a very big high, come together, which created these um, 80 mile per hour winds, 50 to 80 mile per hour winds over the state, which was a pretty dramatic event, right? Now, that's not impossible. Right. That's something that you could think about that would happen and you would plan for. And so it occurred to me that people who are responsible for planning in Hawaii should have had some thoughts about what do we do? You know, when these big winds come up, because you don't want people out trying to, you know, uh, uh, go surfing or go boating and do things where they could get endangered. You don't want tourists to get hurt. So. At the first time I heard about the fire, I thought to myself, wow, that's just, you know, it's climate change, which had something to do with it. And, you know, you could never have predicted this. And then I got to think about it. I said, no, that's not true. No, you, you could have predicted that, that, that you would have these big winds. And if you have big winds, as we see in Canada this year, as we've seen in California in previous years, as we've seen in Arizona and Utah in the Florida. last couple, three years, big winds often create big fires, really bad fires, right? And there was, it was smart. I mean, it was sensible. Any planner should say, what would we do if we had these big winds from high pressure cells, low pressure cells, or both of them colliding? 
what would we do? How would we plan for it? And it turns out they had done some planning for it, but then they completely failed when this happened. Mm -hmm. So what we now know, for example, is that uh, in Lahaina, uh, that the fire actually started nine hours before it reached the town. Now, <laughs> nine hours, that's a long time. We know that most, many people died because the street got completely blocked, the road was blocked, they couldn't use any vehicles, and people were trapped, they couldn't get away. So they ended up either stuck in town or they got stuck uh, trying to flee into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And so we know that was a big part of the problem. But the question becomes, okay, this fire started nine hours, why weren't you doing evacuations much earlier? We know from fires all across North America that you want to start evacuating very early so that you can get an orderly evacuation. So right. somebody's responsible here for not pulling the trigger and alarming people. But what's even more amazing to me is that uh, Hawaii has a series of uh, alarms to let people know about uh, weather events. And in particular, they're very concerned about earthquakes, which happen in the Pacific Ocean. That is going to affect uh, what goes on in Hawaii. Volcanoes which have the same impact right. on the land as an earthquake, and then tsunamis, which can happen when an earthquake happens in the ocean, of course, when it moves to the sea, an earthquake could happen many, many miles away and still have a big impact. So they have a very uh, significant alarm system to let people know that something bad has gone on. And in fact, you might recall that about three years ago, they used that alarm system. It went off accidentally, making an announcement that a nuclear missile had been launched from the Soviet Union or Korea into Hawaii and, and to petrify people until they were able to get on the radio and tell them, no, no, that didn't happen. In the case of this fire, they never set off the alarm. That's so the people that were incredible. in these towns didn't know. And there are many of these stories we're reading about somebody who uh, kind of gets an alert from a phone call, goes and takes a look out their window, and then they see the fire. So here they had had hours that they could prepare. The alarms could have gone off. They could have, you know, tried to do things in a much more early fashion, get more prepared, get on boats instead of jumping into the ocean. But no, the alarms never went off. Sec the third thing was when the fire department showed up to start putting out the fires, they had not properly tested the fire, the, the, the system in so long that there were hydrants with no water in them. So now you had a fire department trying to put out a fire, but it actually didn't have any, any water in the That's hydrants. Crazy. That That's crazy. And then the last people. point was that um, it, it, the, we, we know now that the, power, the fire was caused by an electrical uh, failure, a power failure line. Now, we didn't know that then, and maybe it didn't matter that we didn't know it then. The reality is, is that we know best practices. We see this again in California, in Canada, in, in the southwestern United States where you live, is whenever you start to see a forest fire developing, you shut off the power. Now, this is inconvenient, and people in California complain because they'll be at home and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 100 miles from a fire or 50 miles from a fire, and my power got shut off for four hours or maybe even longer. Well, the reason they do that is because the power company knows that hot capacitors, hot transformers, uh, they are susceptible to explosion, which spreads the fire. You know, the fire comes along, hits one of these transformers, it's hot, it blows up, goes up into the trees, and then the fire starts spreading tree to tree, and it's spreading really fast because it's going tree to tree to tree up to 50, 60 feet in the air. So the best practice is to shut off the power. The power company in Hawaii did not do that. They didn't do that. So Sounds now, like a series of events here. That's just yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. So what do we say on this? It's because everybody should do scenario planning. We talk about that a lot, right, on our podcast. Be prepared, as you said. But what struck me was that here we probably had preparedness plans in place. I'm willing to bet that more research will demonstrate that they had thought about these kinds of things. They thought about what to do if there's a tsunami, how to get people to safe places. 
They probably have actually tsunami exercises where they do practicing and things like that. They've probably had drills related to fire and having the fire department go out and deal with, with wildfires. But yet they did not, were not able to execute on their plan. So what does that mean? It means that their scenario planning wasn't taken to heart. They didn't sit there and say, oh, this is a possibility. What would we do? And then let's practice for that. This is one thing that the military is very good at. They're very good at saying, running exercises to practice what could yeah. happen in the event of, of an action that they would take. And then after the action, they do an after action report. Did we follow our best practices or did the best practices fail? And how did we do? So for example, in Black Hawk Down, we know that uh, they got into trouble. They didn't follow their best practices. Whereas whenever they took out Osama bin Laden, when the helicopter went down, they did follow best practices and it was a successful mission. So what we're looking at here, and it's applicable for business people, is we're saying develop your scenarios for bad situations and good situations. What are the opportunities? What are the downsides? What could competitors do? What will technology do to your business? Yeah. Then develop your plan and then actually be ready to implement it. Do some exercises. Think through how would we react in that circumstance. This has turned out to be a deadly case. Uh, 99 people confirmed dead at the time we're uh, recording this podcast, but 1,300 people missing. We know a lot of people jumped in the ocean. We don't know how many of those people were carried to sea. And bodies will never be found. We don't know how yeah. many people were trapped in buildings and their bodies may have been incinerated never to be found. So it's a horrible thing. But the big thing here is that it could have been far less of a problem, far less of a problem if people had paid attention to their scenario planning. Yeah, and now, I think in the, in the yeah, business ahead, domain, I think a lot of the people that listen to this podcast and a lot of people that are uh, in the business community that are looking at looking forward, being the, the, the strategy folks, tend to be uh, very optimistic. They tend to always be that glass half full folks, which is nothing wrong with that. But I think there's a, there's a really big lesson to be learned here with the fact that you need to listen to your COO, your integrator. Yeah. The people around you that are the quote unquote, the naysayers that are being on the negative side, it isn't being negative per se. It's about being uh, smart about planning. There's nothing to say that you can't still be the, the hard driving CEO founder that wants to get this across the finish line, but you got to build this people around you. And we've talked about bias a lot. This is a pretty heavy load of bias. It's beautiful in Hawaii. They've got this, you know, thriving tourist business. Why should they want to uh, sound the alarm, you know, sooner? Why should they worry about testing the uh, uh, the fire hydrants? I mean, we're right by the ocean. Come on. Yeah, you know, it, it. Again, I want to repeat. We encourage people to do scenario planning. Plan for technology change. Plan for uh, demographic change. Plan for regulatory change. As you do those plans, don't just then shelve them. Don't just say, oh, that was an interesting way to spend the day and now go back to business as usual and never do anything about it. When you exercise your mind to do these scenario plans, then start thinking about how to apply them. It'll help you defend your business to the extent you can in the face of changing environments. But also, as you defend your business, you'll tend to see opportunities. You know, what could we do different? How could we handle this differently? So if they had practiced for this kind of an event, then they could have said, well, how do we get, there's one road in and one road out of this place. What do we do in the case of emergency? How do we maintain, how do we keep that open? And then they probably would have known. Before we sound the alarm, let's send the police in. Let's make sure we got police at corners so that we'd send there with batons and flashlights and keeping the traffic moving, right? They would have learned from the exercises so that they were prepared. As you said, as a Boy Scout, be prepared. Then that could have happened 
but they weren't. And so then we start seeing just a, you know a series of failures, not a filing that put off alarm. As you said, probably didn't want to alarm tourists, didn't want to cause panic among the tourists. Uh, the fact that they hadn't tested the hydrants, that's just a, that's a, a, a that's a, almost a sin. You know, I, I lived in Chicago for 25 years and people used to complain about hydrant testing, but the reality was, you know, you get a fire, you need the hydrant to work. And, you know, obviously there wasn't enough of that going on. But I want to back up even another step, and that was being prepared should this have ever happened at all. And so I did some more research, and uh, one of the th I learned some things. Uh, uh, my father was in World War II. He was in the Navy, long before I was born, obviously. And um, when Pearl Harbor happened, I believe that was December 4th or 5th. Uh, he was uh, drafted on December the 15th, uh, sent to San Diego, arrived on Christmas Day, he was put into the Navy, and then immediately, uh, he think he spent four weeks in San Diego, and then he was sent to Hawaii, where he was put on the USS West Virginia for the duration of the war, where he was in the South Pacific. Uh, it was in the Pacific fighting uh, as, as a naval uh, in the Navy. And uh, his dream was always to take his, my older sisters and, and my mother uh, and to, to, to Hawaii. And then I guess I probably could have gone too if it had, if it had waited to me. But then he never made it. He never, for a series of reasons, uh, he never got the money together and he never was able to take me to Hawaii. He would always talk about how beautiful it was. He would always talk about how much he enjoyed Hawaii and how much he wanted to go back. So that, that's kind of winding the clock back to the 1940s, right? Which is what, about 80 years ago. But let's look at what's happened. It turns out that um, 200 years ago, the area which burned down line was actually a wetland. And I think it's important people start realizing that in many, many places in the United States, we have gone in and built where we probably shouldn't, right? We've gone in and covered wetlands up. In California, there's now a lake 25 miles of diameter south of Sacramento that is literally about six foot deep, and it has flooded homes where there was once a lake 75 years ago, but they turned that into a series of canals for uh, farming. And they thought, oh, this is great. Now you know, we've got canals, we can use the water for farming. Until this last winter happened, there were six major storms that went through over that area around Sacramento, Oakland, San Francisco, dropped a lot of rain, and now it's a lake again. And all the people that live there and farm there are not there anymore. And they said the best estimate is it will drain out in three years. But there's a lot of people saying, you know, you get another heavy rainy winter this winter, which could happen with El Nino, if it stays, so this, may this could take 20, 30, or never drain at all. And then they said it could get worse. They could end up going, end up 100 miles in, dia in diameter and end up flooding places like Fresno. But are people prepared for it? Are people going to do yeah. something about it? And in this case, tourism and the desire for tourism caused them to keep expanding the town. And, and as they expanded the town, what they did was they took away Mother Nature's ability to fight fire, which is wetlands. And so they took away ability to fight a fire and put in place uh, timber construction, which fueled the fire. So you have to kind of start thinking about, you know, what, yeah. was, what was this land intended for? Um, the, uh, the natural lands that, would, when it, that were supplanted originally were supplanted with sugarcane and pineapple crops. Well, this again depleted the land of its natural native resource. But then sugarcane and pineapple became un, uh, unfarmable in Hawaii. It really got to the point that it, it wasn't going to be successful. And so... Yeah, well, you know, what I'll do is, uh, is while we're talking here, uh, you know, I'll share something from our course that I think is, is really beneficial regarding, uh, you know, one of the elements here besides scenario planning, besides the thinking about uh, these other aspects is this idea of, of bias. I think bias is a very, very 
detrimental um, activity within an organization. And I've got uh, this thing that we that you know we've got this course, of course, that we've had, and and so you know we talked about let's go bowling. Bowling is a, is a, is a, an acronym that we use to describe ways to reduce this element of bias. So number one, the B is be aware of your bias. So just being aware of that you have bias is actually uh, proven to elim eliminate a good 60, 70% of it. Uh, the O is open the conversation to a diverse group. This is bringing people to the conversation that would not normally be in the conversation. People that are different than you politically, that have different viewpoints. It's always important to bring their voice to the table. W, who are your competitors? This seems like ridiculous to say, but a lot of people think, well, I don't, I don't have to worry about competitors because I'm the only one. Or I'm just focused on the goal. I don't care about who my competitors are. Of course, until you're eliminated like Sears was by, um, you know, these a whole host of folks, right? Uh, L is look at the, um, look all of your customers, not just your own. You know, we've talked early on uh, in our podcast here about things like, uh, you know, when Pizza Hut was deploying pizza and, and all that, and people like DiGiorno came to, to be and how that was not their original competitors, but at the same time, they are their competitors. Um, I is for identify what trends surround you. Of course, we talk about trends all the time. N is for note who can make you obsolete. That's a big one. And last, uh, the G is get moving on making decisions. You can't just sit there and plan your way. You've got to actually implement things within your organization to get rid of uh, these uh, things that, that might prevent you from being successful. Anyway, I just figured I'd share that with our, our community as a, a mnemonic device to remember um, how to really eliminate bias from your thinking. And so Manny, what you're saying there about bowling is really so important because it gets at what is it you're trying to do and can you do it? And, and what, are, you know, what is the environment in which you're operating? As you said, we tend to maybe put our wants and what we want to do ahead of understanding the environment instead of understanding customers, as you said, and things we're doing. And so in addition to, um, so what happened around Hawaii was that when they, they wanted to try to grow the economy, they went into sugarcane production and pineapple production, which for several years was profitable. But then in the 1960s and 70s, tourism became so popular that it wasn't profitable to continue to grow sugarcane and pineapple. So what they did was they stopped. But the problem was they didn't go back and replant the native environment, the, the native plants. And so what happened was invasive grasses took hold. And that's really where we start to see the big problem, because you've probably seen in California, I know in Arizona, in Utah, uh, that what happens often the fire starts in, a, in grass, in dry grass. You know, it's the shrubbery, the pine grass, and pine needles, that kind of thing. And then it leaps into the trees, and that's where you get a big problem. So that's... What was bad was that in Maui, they didn't do anything about these grasses. They let the land go fallow. Then as it went fallow, they let these invasive grasses grow, which was setting up the conditions for this kind of a wildfire to, to occur. And then what's worse than that is that as the invasive grasses took over, they, they took over a quarter of the island. Meanwhile, the corporate people, instead of going back and saying, hey, let's deal with this part of the this problem, went mm -hmm. ahead and built buildings out of timber frame construction, primarily driven for for tourism, so hotels and shops and things that were going to help the tourists have a good time. So what happened was we start seeing them trying to say, okay, what Mother Nature did, we're going to ignore, and we're going to try to supplant that with what we want as business people. And what happens was in the end, Mother Nature wins. <laughs> She'll come back and bite yep, you. That's true. And that's what I think we need. Business people need to understand is 
when you're looking at trends, be sure you understand, is this a, is a trend that you can be reinforced or is this a trend that could fall off a cliff? One, um, about 15 years ago, I was working with a company and they were doing some software development and they had this idea that they were going to do the software development in Russia. And I was working with them and I sat down with them and had a meeting and I said, listen, I, I understand your desire to do this, but I want to make sure that you know the risk you're taking because you want to do the software development with some people in Russia that don't speak English. They're going to do the development. They're going to give you the code. You don't have no ability to go back against them if this thing doesn't work. Um, you have no other than their promises, you have very little, and you have to pay a premium. At that time, the ruble was very expensive relative to the dollar. Moscow mm -hmm. was the most expensive t town in the, in, the United, in the world in which to live. So what happened was they, they said, well, the, these guys look like they're good. And I said, yeah, but there's a lot of risk in that. There's a lot of risk that you have to look through to see if that's really worth doing. And often I think in business, we, we tend to downplay those risks, as you said, with our bias. Our bias will sit there and say, well, I think I can go make money doing this. Or I watched five other people take an action. I want to do the same thing. And it's okay, fine. But is it short-term or is it long-term? And how much risk are you taking when you go out and start to do this? In this case, the people of Maui should have been a lot more aware and the policymakers should have been aware. And instead of allowing the native uh, 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 fauna to uh, flora, I mean, the native flora to be able to be replaced with these grasses, they should have been more aggressive and they should have been more thoughtful about what they were allowing the developers to do in terms of building up uh, those uh, structures. You know, they should have not necessarily been timber structures and they should have probably had fewer structures. Now, at the end of the day, if you try to put too many people into too much development on an island, it's going to cause trouble. It's just simply going to cause trouble. And uh, I heard another interesting fact this weekend. There are more Hawaiians living in the mainland than live on Hawaii now. Uh, that the rise of tourism, global tourism, has been so large that it's displaced the Hawaiians. They've been forced to move places. And as you know, I lived in Las Vegas uh, for a long time, and and, and they were they were Las Vegas. There's so many Hawaiians in Las Vegas that they recur call Las Vegas the Seventh Island. Now, I don't know enough about Hawaii to understand why seven is important, but anyway, th there's a there's actually radio programs that come on. Uh, on the uh, PBS, uh, on the NPR station, that'll be like, this is the weather in Hawaii, and this is what's going on in Hawaii, and people paying attention to that. And and it, one, people should pay attention to that kind of a trend. They should have said, look, we've got so many tourists, we're doing so much development, that the people who have been here a long time are being forced away. We know, for example, in Arizona, and New Mexico, and in Southern California, the Native people, the Native Americans, knew a lot about how to take care of land and they knew a lot about how to prevent forest fires and they would say you know do this don't do that and then we came along and we said no we're going to ignore what the native americans knew about the natural part of the land and do it our own way and now we get bit in the butt because mother nature pulls her way back and takes takes it on yeah. so just trying to point out that you really have to sit down and think about you know you want to grow your business and we're 100 percent behind growing your business to do that, you want to do scenario planning, and then you want to test your scenario plans to see are you prepared for them, and then think about, then what am I doing just built on a short-term trend, or is it a long-term trend? Is it something that I can rely on to help me for a decade, or is this something that could be bit off and we could fall off a cliff in a week? And then look for those kinds of risks. You've got to take risks in business, but those risks should be very much risks you understand. It shouldn't be like, oh, I'm just going to bet my business on the throw of the dice. It should be, oh, the risk here is based upon whether or not there's a fire, based upon certain weather conditions. And that's why we keep harping on, you know, trends in terms of demographics, which are very predictable. You can reach out to new technologies like AI, which are becoming predictable 
we can reach forward with those. Understanding climate change, which is now becoming much more predictable. And it's been, you know, we know where it's headed. And are you prepared for that? People in Maui simply didn't pay attention to a lot of these things. And it turned into a tremendous, tremendous disaster. How long do you think that Toys R Us sat on the information that their business wasn't doing well? How long well, do you think? Like, that was like a joke that I'm sure that for five years, Toys R Us was buying its, uh, its office supplies online. It was probably buying them from Staples online, and then it bought some of them from Amazon online. I am sure that uh, executives and the, and the admins and the marketing people at Toys R Us were buying lots of products at Amazon and other online opportunities. And when you would ask them, well, but you're not selling toys online, they would be, well, of course not, you know, because we run these great stores. <laughs> and, you know, it's yeah. just being completely blind, as you said, be biased, being completely blindly biased as to what the reality is around you and where things are headed. And, and, and instead of focusing on trying to make the world be the way you want it to be. Yeah. And that's one thing about the, you know, the, the companies that we tend to talk about in a very positive light, the ones that are, that are adapting the Netflix of the world, even the metas of the world, even Amazon, they are, are highly adaptable. They're looking at what's happening. They've tried stores, right? The whole Amazon store, you walk in and you just, pick what you want and walk out and, and it all is tracked with RFID and this and that. I mean, they've experimented with that, right? This is the idea of the, uh, the blank space team. So yeah. even in your organization, I mean, you can apply the blank space team concept to run these scenarios. And, and like you said in the beginning here is actually not just have a, a wonderful exercise and then put it on the shelf, but bring it to the table every once in a while, bring it to the table once a quarter. Uh, have a day where you where you look at, well, what can derail us? What is the one thing that can derail us? And so I don't think enough businesses are doing that. And I think that's really important to consider if you want to have the longevity that we discuss in our in our podcast and, and what we do day, to, day in and day out. Back at the turn of the century, I worked at Computer Sciences Corporation, also called CSC. And it had been founded as a Beltway Bandit doing technology for the federal government, but also had a big commercial business. And that was where I worked. And I remember when I was in that business in, in the 90s, we're looking at the turn of the century, and uh, the CEO of the corporation had a meeting with the leadership team, and we were talking about the fact that a lot of uh, IT work could be done offshore. Now, this wasn't affecting the federal business because there were rules and actually laws that said that a lot of the work that CSC did had to be performed in the United States, and so the competition was limited. But in the commercial business, it was making a big deal. I mean, we were starting to see many, many companies say they didn't want to pay U.S. rates when they could get a lot of work done by people from India, whether those people came over from India and did work in the U.S. or did it offshore. And I was, I'll never forget the meeting. I was in this meeting and uh, we said, well, what happens if you know, they go to some of our biggest clients, like some of the banks, and they come in and they offer to just take over the entire operation where we might have had 500 people working in one of those big banks doing, doing things, people that have been there maybe four, five, six years doing jobs uh, for us. And uh, the, the president of the commercial division said, well, if that happens, I guess we're all just dead. And that was the end of the conversation. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, wow, we are dead. Because now the president of the company is saying, if I can't live in the world that I've always been in, where companies buy the way they've always bought, 
I'm not ready to go forward. I don't know what to do. He didn't say, oh, we better look into moving into India like uh, Anderson Consulting had done. He didn't start saying maybe we should look at setting up some kind of teams that could operate at a much lower cost, that use diversity resources. I mean, I was sitting there in my mind thinking of all the options we had to try to continue to become competitive. Maybe we move up market and we let some of the tasks we do, for which we charge far too much, go to the competition. So we try to move up market, maintain our revenues and maintain our, our margins that way and seek out you know, new things that we can do. Be a leader in emerging technologies that our Indian competitors didn't have access to because we were in the U.S. and we had access to Silicon Valley and, and engineers out of Silicon Valley. So I'm sitting here thinking of all these things we could do. But the president said, oh. Well, if those big clients decide they're going to outsource to India, then I think we're dead. So in your business, in your mind, the question is, <laughs> when you see these threats, what do you do? Do you run away from the threat? Do you pretend it's not a threat? Do you just say, oh, that's, that's the earthquake you've been, and I guess I give up? Or do you sit there and say, what can I do? What would the option be, and how would I try to prepare? You know, Because you can prepare for anything. As, as we saw, this, these two, the, the weather event, of this hurricane coupled with a high that caused the high winds that hit this island did not need to kill this many people. Things no. could have been implemented long ago to never let the situation develop where there was so much grass that it could cause such a fire. Things could have happened that had been put in place to try to deal with the problem when it happened were not exercised. The simple thing is be prepared and be ready to execute. And if you do that, don't just throw your hands in the, in the air. That's just, that that's, that's childish. That's childish. Reminds me of the analogy of the, the bison and the, and the cattle. You know that analogy? I don't know. I so don't during a storm, um, the way that bison act and the way that domesticated cattle act are basically very different. If there's a storm, bison tend to go into the storm. They go towards it because they know that it's going to just, you're, they're going to have to deal with the storm and it's going to pass them by quickly. Cows, however, domesticated cattle run the opposite direction. So what ends up happening is it actually takes longer and it, it's more devastating because they're, they're going to be exposed to it longer. I think it's very similar in what we're talking about here. People just run away from the problem rather yes. than, than deal with it head on. Yeah. Far too often leadership uh, wants to ignore the problem early on. And then when they see it's a problem, they try to just, as you said, ignore it and hope it will go away. And then by the time they're ready to deal with it, it's far too late and you can't deal with it. And you've already, you, you, there's just no way to get over the top again because you're so far behind. That's why scenario planning is so important. And, you know, again, it's a devastating situation in Maui. Uh, it's horrible. All these people's lives are lost. But I think we should learn from this kind of a thing. Don't just throw our hands up and say, oh, nothing could have been done because, oh, yes, obviously there were a lot that could have been done in, in a way of preparing. And we could have had a very, very different outcome. And that's what I think we're trying to tell people in business. What The outcomes are not predetermined. You can do so many different things if you plan for it, if you look at what's going on in the world. It, so right now we have this strike going on in Hollywood where the actors are on strike and the writers are on strike. And a big part of this is the writers don't want ChatGPT to be part of the process of developing scripts. I think that's about as silly as if all the engineers had gone on strike in the 1970s and 80s saying, no, we're not going to let you use calculators. You have to use um, uh, uh, the slide rules, uh, yeah. you know, slide rule. That would have been ridiculous, right? But the, the trying to avoid tools when they're coming along is a ridiculous approach. Instead, you have to say, how can I do, what's this going to do to my business and how can I adopt it and how can I make it effective in what I do? And be prepared. And if you see a downside, prepare for that and plan for it and see what you can do to protect the downside while you look for the opportunities to develop the upside. 
Very well said, Adam. And one last thing I'll say before we log off for today is, you know, Adam and I, this is what we do. We, we help companies to really understand uh, these different scenarios. It's oftentimes a very tough conversation that we have with folks in, in where, where their business is at. We've had guests on the podcast that have been, um, I wouldn't say crucified, but they were very shocked at our, our very frank approach. And you know what? Business is business. Business is not personal. When we have these discussions with folks, it's because we want to see them successful. And I think it's just really important to get this different perspective. And especially if you have people like Adam and I that, are, that do this, that have a trained eye for it, there's a big benefit to it. And you know, you uh, welcome to reach out to Manny at SparkPartners.com, Adam at SparkPartners.com. We're here to, to really uh, look at your business and teach you ways to be prepared. Thank you, Manny. And the best from both of us to everyone in Malibu.